welcome back. So again, schedule. Um, this week is machine design, and then uh, Monday recitation is with Felicity and Kamal uh, from Kenya on, as we just heard from Barcelona, how maybe it doesn't make sense to make anything but making things that matter. And so they'll talk about their work in Kenya. This week is machine design. It's part of the two-week machine building cycle. And the assignment, some of you are already ahead on, is uh, actuate and automate the machine. So you made a mechanism. Actuate is add motors, end effectors, things that make it move. And then automate is add the control system to make it do something. Um, you should have a lab page that describes the overall machine, or machines if there's more than one. Um, and then you should have a personal page that doesn't need to repeat that, but it needs to show what you did in the machine. We, we don't want people coasting. We want everybody to do something, show how you contributed. And just as a note, don't forget, as I mentioned, uh, Git, you each have projects in GitLab, and you can use the issue trackers to manage tasks, milestones, uh, Kanban, it has a lot of tools for project management you can experiment with. So this week is on the actuation and the automation. Uh, this is a link to every few years I teach a machine building class at MIT that spends a whole semester on what we're doing in just two weeks. So this has much more uh, depth on that. And I'll come back to a number of things from that. So what I'm going to do in this class is work back from the mechanism you made to all of the stages to actuate and automate it. So to start, what is a machine? So uh, this is Nadia, one of my students who's now at University of Washington. This is Jonathan, who's now in Detroit. And this was one of the first machines made in Fab Labs making machines. This was this nice snap design. And uh, this was aimed to be equivalent to something like the Modella as a PCB mill in particular. A uh, few hundred dollar bill of materials makes nice circuit boards. Um, clearly, it's a machine. Um, and I'd say it, in many ways, it was a failure because when Jonathan and Nadia posted the design, a number of people tried to make it, but very few people succeeded. A lot of people had trouble reproducing it because if your machine isn't square, if the dimensions aren't right, um, it does. it's hard to assemble, um, it binds, there's friction, it doesn't move well. And so you could make it, but it was hard to make if you weren't Nadia or Jonathan. So that inspired Nadia to do this, which is to make modular machines, where instead of making the whole machine, you make parts of the machine. And so this is Nadia with um, uh, James, who now runs new technology at Zaner that makes big buildings. And now the machine is made out of modules. But crucially, each of the, and this is the subject of today, each of these modules is part of a network 
and it's also a software module. And so in this case, it was a hot wire cutter, but there could be many different machines made out of the same parts. And so this made it much easier to make machines by making them modular. And it inspired Nadia's thesis, which has a lot of background, which is the idea of object-oriented hardware. And so in software, you used to write big programs, and you'd write a new program for a new purpose. Now nobody does that anymore. You write programs as software objects. And then um, when you want a new program, you can recombine the software objects, but you don't rewrite it from scratch. In the same way, instead of having central phone switches, we have the internet as networks. And so the heart of Nadia's thesis is there's a very close analogy that in a machine like this, each of these things is a physical object. It's also a network object. And it's a software object. And so you compose the physical objects and simultaneously compose the network and compose the software to make a machine. And so the machine is not a fixed thing. It's something that you can rapidly compose to do rapid, not just rapid prototyping, but rapid automation, which I think is a really interesting, exciting concept. So then um, last week we covered mechanisms, uh, mechanisms for the machines. And there's many more in the list. I'll add a few more for the future. Um, let's see, there's um, Delta bots. Uh, are a kind of machine architecture. There's um, hexapods are a kind of machine. Let's see, those are creatures, but you can make hexapod um, milling machine. Let's see, I misspelled that. Um, hexapods are uh, another, so there are lots of machine architectures you can use um, that we talked about last week. If we come to Jens now, um, what Jens did so nicely is um, this is a machine architecture system. And so he's focused on this rack and pinion design with the glide blocks. Um, but within that, um, this version is a large shopbot size one. Um, within that same system, though, they have, um, uh, let's see, th these keep evolving. Uh, let's see, there was that generation. Um, oh, yeah, the, um, this is, oh, I, this is a medium-sized one in that family um, that they're making. Um, there's a smaller one, uh, this one, uh, a little tabletop one. Um, there is a medium-sized one. Um, and last year in the Fab Academy, there was a briefcase size one. Um, uh, let's see, I don't know if that one is linked here. Um, and did I show that one last week? Um, let's see, uh, who did the briefcase size one? Um, uh, remind me who did the briefcase size one? Anybody who is uh, there? 
um, Jakob Nielsen? Yeah, uh, it's uh, N-I-E-L-S-S-E-N, was it? No. There is no N-I-L. Jacob, Jacob. I think. Um, K instead of Nielsen, no. Um, it's sorry, a K. Help. N-I-L-S-S-O-N. N-I-L-S-S-O-N? Ah, thank you so much. So, yeah, so he did the Hector, um, which was a briefcase-sized version. Um, but um, what the reason I'm showing this is it's, it's all one machine family, but it's a machine-building system. And so... The link I showed um, during the last review, if we come back to that page, is this page. Um, one of my students, Jake, who I'll mention, he took that Jens design, um, and this is just a simple packaging of it um, to be quick to make. And so within the system, you can then design many families. Um, but the interesting interpretation in what Jake did uh, Jens did is conceptually these are Nadia's modules, but you don't physically make them as separate modules. They're separate design modules you compose and then can make a machine. But it's a machine building system, and so you can quickly add axes, remove axes, change the size, and there's a machine generator. You don't have to redesign everything from scratch. That you start with the machine generator that designs the axes then the machine generator makes the axes you compose to make the machine. And so it's a machine building system. That's an interesting uh, interpretation of it's modular in the design, but not modular <coughs> um, in the construction. So thinking about a machine, not just as a machine, but a machine building system that you can use to make uh, many different machines. So once you have the basic architecture of the mechanism and the machine building system. Um, is it uh, belts? Is it rollers? Um, you know, I, I, I showed this uh, quickly. If we go to here, um, uh, Jake is doing a version of Jens's axis where instead of the rack and pinion, it's still modular and still parametric, but this one is made by using inexpensive um, uh, skateboard bearing and using belts rather than rack and pinion, but it's still a parametric machine um, generation system. So once you have that, then we'll start working further back. These are notes from a dear colleague at MIT who's one of the gurus of machine building. Um, he wrote um, what the Bible called Precision Machine Design. Um, which is one of the Bibles of machine building. And um, he designs extreme machines. So like building size water jet cutters or machines that have spindles that turn at hundreds of thousands of RPMs. And so um, this is notes from him on the error budget for your machine. And so 
as you build the machine, yeah, here, here's this precision machine design reference. Um, to start, I had mentioned last week the idea of structural loops. And so if you go from the end effector through to the workpiece, you can trace the, for, the path the force takes through. And every one of these joints introduces um, static and dynamic error. So you want to try to make the structural loop as small as possible um, and make it as stiff as possible. But then you can actually model the uncertainty introduced at every joint. There's a static error for misalignment and a dynamic error for how it deforms. And then when you're more serious about machine building, what you start doing is you start building things like spreadsheets, where the spreadsheet adds up all of the errors in each of these joints to give you an overall error budget. And so if you start from the overall goal you want the machine to do, like for the PCB plotter, the size of the traces you want to be able to make, if you work back to the error spreadsheet, you'll find you have pretty tight tolerances it gives on the error each step in working back from your machine. And so it's a really good idea to make a, um, a budget for the errors in your machine. And in particular, what that'll lead you to realize is to be really skeptical about the specifications for machines. Um, if you look at almost any machine whatsoever, they'll give you um, an uncertainty, the error, but often they don't come anywhere near that because what machine, a bad machine will quote is like the size of the step of a stepper motor. And they'll call that step size the error, the uncertainty in the machine. But if you actually look at the error budget of the misalignment and the flexing and the whole force loop, and then there's a series of questions you can ask. Um, one is how small can you move? One is are the axes perpendicular? If you move in a straight line, is it straight? If you move in an, another direction, is it perpendicular? A really tough one is if you move somewhere and you go away and come back again, do you come back to where you started? Each of those has different answers and each of those often leads to a delivered error that's much worse than what the machine specification is. Um, so you should be really skeptical when you read statistics on machines, unless the error budget has been done really carefully. And an interesting exercise in your machine is do some tests, you know, move in a straight line, is it straight, go away and come back, how well do you come back to the same place? Um, a great exercise is to try to, you know, just characterize your machine. Um, so those are general concepts in the performance of machines. Um, so going further back, um, I won't say anything for today, but we spend a week on sensors, uh, we spent a week on actuators. Um, the one note I'll say here, and I'll come back to this, is um, many, many machines run feed forward rather than feed back, where they measure what they're doing. But you've seen it's easy to make sensors. 
and it's not hard to provide feedback. And so it's gotten much cheaper and easier to make machines that don't just do a task, but they measure themselves doing the task. And I'll talk much more about that. So you have the machine, then you have the thing that does whatever the machine does. And so an interesting example, um, uh, when I showed uh, the Jake machine and there was the question, is it a plotting machine? Um, this is um, Nadia and Alan. And I showed this before, but I'll show again. This is their pop fab. And so um, it's a three axis system. And what, let me do that slightly slowly. As Nadia does this, you'll see right there three balls. Um, those three balls are a kinematic mount, which is something I showed last week, um, which is three balls that fit into three grooves. And there's only one way you can do that. So if you watch what Nadia does, she's just going to slap it on. But by when she slaps it on, there's only one way it can fit. And so she's tightening it, but now she knows exactly where that head is. And so now you put that on, and so this is a 3D printer. But the whole point of this machine was, um, let's see, the, um, let me see if they have a good image of that. The, the whole point of that machine is for the pop fab, she had a whole family of heads. Um, and so, um, this image is the pop fab with a machining spindle, and she had a vinyl cutter head uh, and a line and a drawing head. And so, just once you have the module, the three-axis system, they had uh, modular end effectors. So rather than one machine, it was many different machines just by changing the end effector. So done right, what you're going to do this week doesn't need to be, it can be, a rather than a machine, it can be a machine generation system. And then any one machine, rather than just doing a single task, can have modular end effectors so the machine can do many tasks. So then we need to power it. This is just a link to the standard inventory. And we've covered a number of components for uh, power electronics, like the big transistors. Uh, so then you need to control the machine. And this now is uh, something that's evolved quite a bit. So uh, this is a PRS standard shopbot. And for the PRS standard, um, the four by eight foot version is $14,000. Um, this is the PRS alpha. And uh, the four by eight is uh, $20,000. So it goes up about $5,000 between two machines that look the same. And the difference between them is open versus closed loop. So on the standard, um, you send a step to the motor and the motor steps. And that, that's uh, all that it does. Um, but a stepper motor 
is specified by a number of things. And one of the most crucial um, specifications is the torque it can, can provide before it loses a step. And so um, if you go to the, uh, if we take, say, Jameco, and then we go to um, electromechanical, um, oh, let's see, they've changed their site. I want stepper motors. Uh, Um, they used to make it easy. This is a site. Let's see. Um, well, here, let, let's do it this way. Let's search for, okay, the. Ah, I don't like what they've done to their site. Um, I want. Uh, Okay, finally we're into it. They made it harder to navigate. If you go into the stepper specifications, finally, um, uh, these are the specs. The holding torque is the torque it can provide, but if you beat that, what happens is the motor loses a step. And so if you're using um, a feed-forward machine like this, if the force of machining is a little bit harder than you expected, or you try to go a little bit too fast, if the, the, the torque the motor is providing um, beats this number, then the motor loses a step. And so it means the head is no longer where your thought, software thought it was. And so if you try to go back to where you started, you'll be in a different place. So a feed forward machine, you need to use conservatively so, so you don't lose a step. Um, a feedback machine like this, the crucial distinction is um, uh, um, it's closed loop, which means um, there's an, uh, there are a number of different ways to do it, but a standard way is the, the, um, there's a rotary encoder built into the um, stepper. So the stepper measures its position and if you go too fast, it recognizes it loses a step and it just keeps going until rather than doing a set number of steps, it goes to a set position. So ShopBot tries very hard to keep their prices down, but this $5,000 difference is the industrial difference between buying all of that. But you've learned how to measure position. Um, you can use optical encoders, you can use uh, magnets, you can use capacitors, and it's not, diff and with a $1 microcontroller, you can take that measurement back and communicate it. Um, and so commercially, there's a significant difference between open and closed loop machines, um, but when you're making a machine, it's now become much easier to run closed loop, and almost always it's a really good idea. There's all kinds of things that can go wrong with the machine. And so it's a bad idea to just push data to the machine. You want as much data coming back from the machine so you know what it's doing. Um, and then this is motion control. Motion control is things like, I wanna make steps, you might micro step so it's smoothing. 
uh, smoother. Microstepping is where you continuously vary the current between the coils to make less than one step so it's smoother. Um, you uh, measure the position with an encoder so that you know how far you went. All of that is moving the, the moving degrees of freedom. Then one step further back still, um, in the shop I run at MIT, this is one of our machines. Um, and if you look at the back of this machine, there's this amazing casting that's about 10 feet tall, a foot wide and a foot thick. This just amazing cast. And that's the, the backbone of the machine. That's the spine. The force loop of the machine go, goes from here all the way down here and back up again. And the forces are huge, high-speed machining, but it's maintaining a tenth of a thousandth of an inch, a few microns. And it's doing that by being really, really, really stiff. Um, on the other hand, um, this is a water jet cutter, a beloved tool, if you have one. And when you're water jet cutting, um, there's a jet coming out uh, um, at high speed, and it has a garnet abrasive. But when you move the head of the water jet, when this is moving, um, the jet curves. Because think about like spraying a hose back and forth. So when you're cutting with the water jet, where it cuts is not where the head is, it's where the jet is. And so that means you don't place the head where you want to cut, you place the head so that the jet comes out where you want to cut, which means the positioning of the machine is dynamic, it's not static. That where the head goes depends on how fast it's moving and where it's moving. So there's a really subtle calculation for how to move the head so the jet curves to the right place. Now, that thought leads to a common bad idea which is instead of making um, a really stiff machine, um, you could make a soft floppy machine and in software account for how it's, it's moving. Um, the reason that's a bad idea is if you actually do the error budget and calculate, you'll find if you have a soft floppy machine but you want it to act stiff, and you figure out how fast do you need to update the control and how much current do you need in the motors, it find, you'll find that the control system you need is really, really demanding. It's really hard for good software to make up for a bad mechanism. You, you'll need a lot of current and you need a very high frequency control system to make up for a bad machine design. So, you want the machine to be as stiff as possible where you need it to be stiff, um, and then take up the, the dynamics where you really need to. Generally, it's a bad idea to make a bad machine and have good software. So then this now leads to control. So again, we're working back from the machine. So um, uh, this is a link to a classic um, nice control theory book. Control theory is a huge subject. Um, and there's uh, many kinds of controls in sophistication. Um, so 
let's say we have an axis. Um, we have a, a, a motor that moves on it. And we, we uh, so like this is a cross stage. And we want to get to this location. So, um, and let's say we, we've done everything carefully. It's a good stiff machine. Um, we have a rotary encoder measuring position. We have a good micro stepper so it's smooth. We know everything about it. Um, and so we have the computer um, talking to the motor and listening to the position sensor. And so how do we tell it to go to the location? Um, simplest thing to do is you turn on the motor and then you measure the position and the position starts changing. And then when the position gets to where you want, uh, you turn off the motor. Um, this is a terrible idea. Um, this is called bang-bang control. Um, it's bang-bang because you just slam it on and slam it off. And it's a terrible idea because if you do this, when you just turn it on, the whole machine lurches because you slam it to start it moving. Um, and then when you get to the end, you slam it to turn it off, but, but there's inertia and you'll probably overshoot. And so your machine is stuttering and jumping and, and missing. Um, or another example, uh, a classic example of this would be is if you have a furnace and you have a temperature sensor and a heater, bang bang control would slam it on. Um, but if you turn off the heater when you get to the temperature, there's still um, thermal mass, and so you'll significantly overshoot the temperature you're going to. Um, so on-off control is generally a bad idea. That's called bang-bang uh, control. Um, better than bang-bang control is um, PID. So um, uh, PID is proportional integral derivative. And this is the workhorse of control. So a PID controller, you have three terms. Um, one is you measure the difference between uh, where you want to be and where you actually are. So you have an error term. So this is measuring your actual position versus the target position. And so um, if we take the example of moving it, um, the error term uh, initially starts large um, because um, you're far away, and then the error term will get to zero when you get to where you want to be. Um, so you could just use that to drive the motor, but this is still terrible because when you turn it on, the error term is initially huge when you want to go to a new, new location. Um, so uh, this is, is, is taking um, your uh, actual position, um, the, the, the difference between the target position and your actual position. Um, so the two other terms are the integral and a derivative. The derivative term is the, the the rate of change of your position. Um, the integral term is adding up over time. Uh, 
the um, the difference between where you are and where you want to be. And what these are doing is, and then you add each of these terms together with, with a, a constant in front. And what this is doing is the derivative term says you can't make changes too quickly. And so if you want to go to a new location, instead of slamming it on, um, this corresponds to a really steep slope. And the derivative term prevents you changing quickly. And so um, what the derivative term does is it limits how quickly you can change. Um, and so you start turning on the current to the motor, but no faster than the derivative term. Um, and then as the error starts coming, it starts coming down. But then there's a problem, which is, um, if you're just using the error term, the error can never go to zero because as you get closer to where you want to be, the error gets smaller and so nothing is moving you. So what the integral term does is it adds up to reduce the baseline so that you eventually settle in where you want to be. And so the proportional term moves you, the derivative term limits how quickly you move, and then the integral term tracks the baseline of your motion. And those three together um, uh, let you make the control. So in software, it's really easy to implement. You take a difference, um, you take the rate of change of the difference, and you add up the difference, and then you have three constants in front of them. So that's PID control. And there's a huge amount of lore as well as math on PID tuning. Tuning is how, how you pick those three parameters. Um, and there's lots and lots of links you can find on that. A good idea is if you look at, for example, PID tuning of a balancing robot, and if you look at the videos, um, you'll find lots of things that look like this. And so um, this is a self-balancing robot this is showing the, the PID coefficients. So there's the difference, the integral. And so right now, um, well, it, it goes off to infinity and doesn't balance. Um, if you set it, now it's way too jittery and it falls down. This is what PID looks like if you get all of that wrong. And then if you get those things tuned right, now the robot is balancing. Um, so you can, Tune by tweaking, there's a lot of algorithms for tuning. PID is the workhorse of control. And so it's much better than uh, bang, bang. But it's still not good enough. Um, so PID um, worries about the rate of change. But now if we think about our machine, think about driving your car. Um, if the uh, motor is here and you want it to get to here, what you really want it to do is um, smoothly accelerate. So there's not just the velocity, but there's the rate of acceleration. You, you don't slam on the gas, you, you limit the rate that you accelerate. So what you want to do is um, you want an acceleration profile for not just the velocity, but the rate of change of velocity. And now comes the really tricky thing. Um, when you're driving down the road and you see a stoplight, 
you don't get to the stoplight and then uh, put on the brakes. Um, you start slowing down way before the stoplight. And so what that means is around here, um, in this part, the motor is accelerating. When you get to about here, you want to start slowing down long before your final destination. That's actually pretty subtle. Um, this is called model predictive control because you know the destination, um, but to know when to start slowing down, you need to know something about the machine. You need to know about the profile of how the machine accelerates and deaccelerates. And so you actually need to have a little model of your machine that you use to slow down um, so that you, you gracefully get to the destination just as you're finished uh, deaccelerating. Okay, so the simple act of the motor gets from here to here, even if you have the motion control, there's a lot of subtlety that goes into the, um, the, the control one level up from that. So bang, bang is terrible. PID is the workhorse, but as you progress, and I'll show you systems that do this, you move from just PID to real uh, model predictive control. Now, something to know is the math of these is easy to implement. It's very easy for a microcontroller to do it. What's hard is um, building the models, that, that the calculations are easy, but you actually need to either um, build a mathematical model of your machine or you need to measure your machine's operation to get it right. Now, this may sound abstract, but if you get this wrong, your machine is noisy, it'll make more errors and it'll wear out more quickly. If you get it right, the machine is quieter, um, you get better results from it, and the machine lasts longer because there's less wear on everything. So these end up being really important to the operation of your machine. So working back still further. So once you have controls for the machine, um, then you need to talk to it. So machine control, motion control is all this stuff to get to where you want to be. Machine control is then how you talk to the motion control. So um, uh, we covered way back a number of formats. So G-code is one of the oldest formats. Um, it's a standard, but it has a bizarre history. G-codes uh, comes from, let's see, this was the G-code. Um, G-code has a complex history through photo plotters and sewing machines and a number of different machines. It was never really designed for the modern era, but it's been around for so long, it's the most common thing. And so in G-codes, um, there are standard for machines, um, there are standard codes, um, but there's a number of codes that depend on the machine that are different from different machines. Um, the G codes isn't a thing. There's lots and lots of different implementations of it. So it's a slightly messy thing, but it's by far the most common standard used for machine control. Um, Chopbot, uh, let's see, this is a Waterjet format. Um, Chopbot defined a format they use that they've opened up, OpenSBP, 
Um, Roland machines, one of the things they use is RML. This dates back to old plotters. Um, these are some of the different formats. Um, uh, most common is G-code. Um, it's not hard to write G-code, but the main thing to understand is when the G-code says go from here to there, there's still a lot of work to come. The G-code will say I'm here and I, I'm here and I want to go there, um, but it won't say how to do it. So to interpret the G-code, you then need an interpreter. And so um, this is a example, a popular example of a G-code interpreter. Um, this on one side has motor controllers, on the other side talks to a computer, and then um, it has an uh, X-Mega AVR. And then the crucial thing this does is to go from the G-code to the steps, you need to describe the machine. It needs to, it, once the G-code says in absolute units, here's the dimensions, but the G-code interpreter needs to know, is your machine square axes? Is it rotary axes? How, what is the gear size? What is your step size? Um, the G-code interpreter needs to have a complete description of the machine. So the transition from machine control to motion control needs an interpreter, and the interpreter needs to know about the construction of your machine. Um, so this is a standard one. Um, and again, the thing that's easy to miss when you're starting is there's a lot you need to tell the, the tiny G interpreter about your machine. And if you change anything on your machine in the design, you have to go back to the tiny G interpreter and tell it how you changed your machine. Because the G code doesn't know if you change, like say, the pitch of your gears. So the, the transition from machine to control to motion control passes through a machine description. And it also passes through the model description for things like the rate of acceleration. And so that, that's a, there's a lot to do to implement that. That's a popular one. So uh, I don't like these. Um, these are common, and you'll use them. The reason I don't like them is um, we saw in today's review, and we'll see to, uh, next week, many different machines. And when you're making the machine, you're changing all different sorts of things. Is it a rack and pinion? Is it a belt and capstan? Um, is it a linear axis? Is it a rotary axis? Anything you change in the machine, you have to go back and change the interpreter. So the interpreter has frozen in it a description of the machine. And if you change the construction of the machine, you haven't really changed it until you change the interpreter. And so it puts a lot of state into the machine. There's your software in your computer, there's the construction of the machine, but then there's the, there's the virtual machine described here. So in the networking class, you learned all about making networks. It's not hard to make fast networks. Um, a good number to keep in mind is for a typical machine of the kinds you're using in the lab, uh, nothing happens much faster than about a millisecond. Uh, a millisecond is about the time scale of things like 
the motion. Um, but the, the little processors we're using run at a microsecond. So a humble AT Tiny can do 10,000 operations per machine operation, per millisecond. So it's not hard to make a network that runs much, much faster than the machine. And so that led to, um, uh, this is a project Nadia did with Alan, who are in that um, uh, video I showed you. Uh, Alan right now is, um, I misspelled that. Uh, Alan started, his, his company is Shaper Tools, which makes um, these interesting um, uh, NC routers where you move it manually, but the router follows the CAD file. Um, a number of years ago in the machine building class I do, it led to this thesis for Alan um, on the idea of virtual machine. Um, and so the idea of the virtual machine is uh, instead of having, um, to sketch the difference, um, if each of these is an axis, each of these is a motor, um, in the machine, Conventionally, you have a controller, so we plug each axis um, into the controller. Um, then this talks to the outside world, and in the brains of the controller is the description of the machine. And so if you change anything about the machine, you have to change this configuration. Um, a very different architecture emerging is each axis of the machine is connected on a network and the network goes right into the computer and there is no controller. And so in, in this version, the computer here figures out what you want to make. It sends a G code here and then the interpreter figures out what the motor does. But if the network is fast enough, um, the computer, instead of sending G codes, it can send packets of data on the network that talk directly to the motors. And so now if you wanna change the machine, you change the software here, but you don't have to change the microcode here. And so this kind of machine is stateless. There's no configuration in the machine. Each motor just knows how to move. All of the state is in software and you're relying on the fast network. Um, this kind of machine has a lot of internal state. And so um, th this kind of design is much more flexible for rapid machine building. Because if you change the machine, you change the machine and then you change the software controller, but you don't need to reconfigure the hardware in the machine. And so that distinction was the heart of um, Alan's thesis. So again, this was his thesis on that idea of virtual machine controls. And then Gestalt was a, a software framework he did um, to implement it. Now, to do that, if you're gonna go from a hardware controller to a software controller, um, there's a key question, which is time. 
So let's say you want to make a three-axis diagonal move. Each of these motors needs to be running in very tight synchronization, because if one gets ahead of another, you won't follow the path. So in a networked machine, um, you need to manage the synchronization. So there's multiple ways to do it. Um, one way to do it is handshaking. If you handshake, um, you have extra lines. And so the handshaking line um, is you'll send a command out, and then all of the motors share lines where they can pull that line up and down to report on their progress. So you tell them what to do, and then they report back to you how well they're doing, and you use that to coordinate them is one approach. Um, one approach is a broadcast. Um, you send out a message that tells everybody what you want them to do, but they don't do it yet because they need to interpret it. So you tell them what to do, then you tell them to get ready, and then you tell them to go. It's like a race. You tell on your mark, get set, go. And so you give them their jobs, they all get ready, and then you give them a starting job for what they're going to do. So that's a broadcast. Um, one way to do it is a timestamp, um, where you tell them what you want them to do at some point in the future and when to do it. And so you don't tell them what to do now. You, you tell them in the future what to do and when to do it, and they maintain a buffer of those. And it's their job to do a certain operation at a certain time. So that's timestamping. Um, an interesting one is what's called back pressure, where um, if you um, if the network works by passing tokens of data, and each of these stores a token, um, when it's done its job, it it removes the token um, at the at the network, and that makes space for a new token, and so the rate at which the nodes um, remove their tokens tells the controller when it's time to give a new token, and it's called back pressure, that it's sort of like watching somebody when you're talking. So right now I'm talking and I can see Roman looking and his brow is slightly furrowed, and there's a, there's a back pressure right now from Roman to me, um, and he's not actually telling me directly, but there's a back pressure that's controlling the flow of my information uh, to Roman. Right? So those are all strategies for synchronizing networks. Um, when you use a controller like this, you don't have to do it, because all the motor controllers are working off the processor clock. Um, but it means everything's wired into this controller. Um, you have to do this if you make a network, but once you do that, you don't need to wire everything into the same controller. Neil, could you say a yeah. word about um, how the uh, synchronization would work in the case of timestamping? Like, how are the clocks between the nodes yeah, so, so a, a, the network? Right. A great example of that is if you look at um, WebRTC audio. Um, if you look at the spec for WebRTC audio, when you're playing sounds, you can't afford gaps in the sound. 
So the WebRTC audio is a beautiful standard. Um, and I used it in one of the Hello Worlds um, uh, for the multimedia one. Um, so for output devices for, um, oh no, let's see. No, that was in interface programming. Um, And we did multimedia and web audio. So that, this one makes sounds with WebRTC audio. And the really neat thing in WebRTC audio is um, I ship you a buffer of sound I want you to play, and I give you a start time. And then um, you, you are responsible for starting to play that buffer at that time. I'm I'm giving you buffers in the future that are going to be played in the future, and I'm giving you times to start them. You collect those buffers, and it's your job, the speaker's job, to, in, or in this case, the web page's job. The website sends the buffers. The web page's job is to line up those buffers at the right time in the future. And so what that means, like here, is um, uh, the if you use a uh, crystal on the board, a resonator, you measure time to parts per million. And so each node has a part per million clock. And so you're shipping buffers and start times. And then each motor, its job is to start the next operation at the timestamp you gave it. Okay, so that still means that the nodes need to have some way of synchronizing their time at right and so you need to set a time zero but that's easy to do for example with a broadcast you, you do a broadcast that tells everybody synchronize your clocks to this broadcast uh, and then you go from there and by the way one of the if you're going to do this approach it helps to have two processors rather than one big processor to have one processor doing the communication to the outside world and lining up the buffers and another on this side making the steps so this one does the communicating this one does the stepping, and when, th when this is ready for the next one, this just grabs it from the communication processor, but the stepping processor doesn't have to worry about the communication. It's more work to have one processor do both of those jobs. Okay, thank you. Okay, so now here's a good example of that. Um, Jake, who I mentioned, who's one of my current students, um, has been doing a version of all of this, and um, He's been working, I did a mods recitation, he's been working on interfacing mods to network machine control. And so this is a really fun one. Uh, Steve Reich made a piece of music called um, Music for Pieces of Wood. And so Jake took this as a test case. And so this is playing the Steve Reich piece. And so as it, yeah, you play the audio locally to hear it. Um, and this is already a little bit out of date, but um, what it'll start showing as this goes through is um, is a series of steppers. Then each of these steppers has a controller. Okay, so each of those is a stepper controller. Um, but again, it's stateless. It's just a network node. All it does is have steps on the motor. Then um, the steppers go to this board, and this is a router. 
and then the router goes to the host interface. And then what the host interface is doing is it's a big mods program. And the, here's the mods program, and this is playing the music. So the mods program is generating the packets. The packets communicate through the USB interface to the router. The router ships the packets off to the motors, and then the motors execute the operation. Um, and what Jake is right now in the process of implementing everything I described at the beginning, all of the acceleration profiles over this to do motion planning. Um, but that's an example of you make a graph of the flow of information to control the machine and software, and he's using mods for that. And then you just send packets out from the graph, and then the machine is just nodes um, with network nodes, but there's absolutely no configuration in the machine. And so that's a, a data flow machine controller. So does that mean when you go open loop here, I don't see a problem because you can just send packets down and, and then it will be executed at the right time from the local clock. But once you get into a closed loop, you have to hit a trade-off between how much stuff am I sending down the line ahead of time uh, versus how quickly can I change my mind about what yep. I want to do. Yep. So um, Jake is doing, right now he's doing a master's thesis and it's, it's gonna be really exploring that boundary because some of the closed loop you wanna do at the motor it's, it's just too fast to do it outside. But part of what he's doing is he's re-implementing all of this in FPGAs and he's using a high-speed USB profile to see how much bandwidth he can get back, to see how far back he can put the loop closing. And so where you close the loop, you could close it at the local controller, you could close it at the router. If you have enough bandwidth, you can actually close it at this higher software level. And that's a very non-trivial trade-off. That's something he's exploring. Okay, let's keep moving back still, still more to go. So um, when you've been making PCBs, um, let's do that. Um, oh, by the way, I added zooming and panning to mods now, long overdue. Um, so, um, we're calculating the PCB. Uh, here's our PCB. Um, so what just happened? Um, this is doing path planning. And so if we look at this example, um, we have the PCB you want to make. Um, this module thresholds it. And that's not interesting because it's already black and white. Um, this module is really interesting. Um, what this one does is what's called a distance transform. This measures the distance of every pixel to the boundary. And if you think about it, the naive way to do it is to take every pixel and, and you have to measure the difference to every other pixel. And so it's what's called an N squared algorithm that would take forever. This does it in, n rather than n squared, linear time with a really clever algorithm. So if we look at that module, um, there's the image that comes in, there's the transform out, there's the user interface, and then each of these modules, and this was the recitation I did last week, um, has a worker, which is a, a process thread, 
And this one does the calculation of, this is the math of finding the distance to the boundary. It's a really neat algorithm called a distance transform. Um, and I wrote mods to make it easy to build these workflows. So this module offsets for the size of the tool once you have the transform. Um, this module finds the edges after you've offset. Um, this one orients which way the edge points. Um, this one vectorizes it to turn it into strokes for the machine. Then um, this module collects the multiple sets of strokes um, and turns it into a path. Um, this module formats it, in this case, for RML. And then this module handles the communication. And the whole reason I wrote mods was whenever you use um, Fusion or Partworks or the old fab modules, these kinds of steps are going on, but you can't see them and you can't really change them. The whole idea of mods is this shows you the path planning so that you can add different inputs or outputs or see the algorithms. And there's a number of path planning things that's going to get ported to mods, like um, three-axis rough and finish cutting and high-speed tool paths and things like that. Um, but I encourage you to just go through this to see um, all of the different steps to go from starting from, uh, you know, the, the input is just the design of what you want to make. Um, sorry, I wanted to do that. The input is just the design, and then the output is this calculation. And so uh, this implements it, but it actually lets you see the internals of um, how you do that. So that's an example of path planning, which is once you have machine control and motion control, there's still a lot of work that goes into uh, planning the path for the machine. Then one step still further is the design representation. Um, you have to describe an abstraction of what you want the machine to do. And so uh, this is a link to something we've recently added to mods is um, uh, a geometry engine. So this um, uh, this is a simple design of a, um, a torus intersected with a lattice, um, and this is uh, doing a functional representation. So let me add a module that does, um, this looks at objects. Uh, so if I take this output and I send it out here. Um, this is a formula, and it's an interesting formula. It's positive inside, it's negative outside, and distance is boundary. Um, this is a module that uses the GPU to render it. So th this formula turns into that shape. Um, and then this, once you have that from this module, you can output it for many different purposes. So like I could also add um, a module. This is a slicing module. So if I produce it again, um, this one is giving me a um, 2D slice through the 3D object that I could then send, for example, to a laser cutter. Um, so working back still further, the design representation is 
You could represent triangles, you could represent voxels, you could represent polynomial patches. This example I'm showing is a functional representation where you represent a distance field. There's a number of different choices and trade-offs for representing geometry in the workflow. And I'm particularly fond of this approach called functional representation. So now to start pulling all these parts together, um, oh, sorry, the last step is a user interface. So Chili Pepper is a very popular um, user interface to the Tiny G. The Tiny G was the controller I showed you. Um, what Chili Pepper does is it reads in a design with a design representation. Um, it turns it into G codes. It sends the G codes to the machine, and it also lets you see back what the machine is doing. So this is finally what the user sees to run it. Um, and what you should see now from this class is how much is going on, that you have the geometry engine that represents shape. You have the path planner that turns it into a toolpath. The toolpath gets converted traditionally to a file format like G-code. The G-code goes to the interpreter. The interpreter turns it into motion commands, including uh, ramping acceleration profiles. And then you finally get to the stepper that turns it into the, the steps and the encoders that give you information back. So there's a so lot of steps between the, the, inter the GUI and the machine bus. Yeah, so um, interesting. I didn't know that um, Chili Pepper also did like uh, path planning, but I think it only does like. No, no, it doesn't. Sorry, I, I mixed two different things. What I said was misleading. Um, Chili Pepper starts from the path. Um, it doesn't know about offsetting. I don't believe it knows anything about offsetting. It no. just starts from the path. No, exactly. I think it's just a nice interface to send a G code file to your Chili to your uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I what I said was misleading. I mixed two different things and. Uh, just to belabor, part of the reason why I continue to spend so much time on mods is because I don't want each of these things to be separate. I want to have an integrated environment where you can do geometry and path planning and machine control and motion control all in one. Again, Chili Pepper is doing machine control. The Tiny G is doing motion control. Um, yep. Since we were talking about mods before, and it was a bit slow, late to the question there, um, I forgot to ask the question on Monday. Is um, uh, legacy machine support? Um, are the MDXs, the 15 and 20, are, going to, are, are they ever going to be happy inside? <laughs> the whole point of mod is um, uh, let's see, th th this, this one is uh, an epilogue. Um, the, the whole point of mods is anybody can write a little module um, and anybody can share them. And so uh, I, I, I'm going to finish the plumbing in mods. So there's a, some crucial things urgently missing like nesting modules and taking groups and copy edit paste, populating mods for other machines. So the whole point is anybody can do those and share those. I'm, I'm not going to do that. All of you can do that. Right, because I know that the, um, um... I think flow control is still an issue with those machines, and that's on the yeah. uh, JavaScript side. But I'll uh, yeah. 
the, the whole the whole point of mods is you can compose them. So if if somebody does an MDS40 and somebody does a flow control, you know, you can each do one module, but it's a framework that lets you plug them into each other. Yep. Okay. Uh, still a few more things we need to get to. So the tiny g comes from synthetose, and um, uh, you can buy the tiny g. Um, you can buy the Gerbil Shield, which is a G-code interpreter for Arduinos, and the G2 is their um, newest one, which is a higher-performance ARM version. And so these are nice, popular, widely used versions of um, – uh, they implement both machine and motor control, meaning they interpret the commands and they turn it into steps. Very popular. Um, and ramps is um, uh, oh let's see sorry I, I jumped I jumped one line uh, uh, replicate um, uh, is another version of uh, one of these systems uh, no connection to tiny G it's just another version of a complete system where you send your commands in it interprets the commands and talks to the motor. Um, and it, typical, let's see, I don't remember the pricing of these, but um, uh, let's see, their web store, the, yeah, like 100, Tiny G is $129, um, but the bill of materials for you to make these is, you know, say, 10 not $100, is one reason to want to do that. Um, Pololu is a fun vendor. Um, they make all kinds of stuff, but the thing they're most known for is they have these little boards that each do a task. And so this is driving brush motors, this is driving stepper motors, this is um, uh, uh, servo motors. They make these cute little boards that are very reasonably priced. Um, so these are um, uh, like $10. Again, you can make this board for a dollar or two, but it's convenient. These are $10 scale. And so, for example, for rep wraps, ramps is the um, Arduino Mega Pololo Shield, um, which is an Arduino shield using these Pololo boards to do rep wrap control. Yeah, I think the, the Pololo, yes, sort of did for drivers, for stepper drivers, the same thing that Arduino did for microcontrollers. So that's sort of the standard board layout that you can just, you know, and there's been actually many different vendors that, um, so the, the silent step stick from um, Trinamic um, has the same, they have the same layout, they're, they're, they're plug compatible. Um, um, yeah, so, yeah, again, they're lovely, modular, reasonably priced, strongly recommended. But now we get to... Um, Jonathan, who you've seen in the images and may be listening in Detroit, um, here's Jonathan's um, uh, shield, stepper shield. Um, Danielle, who we, I heard from in Comp Landfort, here's his stepper controller. Um, and Jake, who's prolific, um, has been designing a number of these. Um, and so this is his network stepper controller. So this is the stepper controller 
that's designed to plug into one of these real-time networks. Um, and then this is his um, BLDC, his brushless DC controller. And the reason the brushless controller is so exciting is a brushless controller is what you need as a spindle controller. So to, to, to run the spindle motor, you need a hefty BLDC. And so this isn't aimed at little servos. This is actually at drive, driving it aiming hefty spindles. So um, I link this row to say their designs are lovely designs. They're recommended. Um, but as you ramp up in this, you'll learn how to do it. So you can be inspired by that design. But pretty, pretty quickly, just in your own lab, you can start designing and making your own stepper controllers. Um, each of these people didn't, they did it in part because they wanted to do something slightly different from everybody else, but in part just it's not that hard to do this and make this part of your workflow. So these are all really interesting uh, systems like the Tiny G, but that you can make and that are strongly oriented towards this migration from central control to distributed control. Okay, working back further, um, these are two fun vendors. Open Builds has to everything you need to make a machine, all kinds of parts. They have some of everything we've talked about. Um, you can make almost all of this in the lab now, all the way down to the motors. The generator we saw, um, the inverse of the generator is a motor, if you get really excited. Here's kits you can use to make everything from scratch. Some of this you can buy for things you don't want to buy, also good just for inspiration. Um, robot Shop is another one, aimed for robotics, but Robot Shop, again, has all the kinds of things uh, we've been covering to make machines, all the degrees of freedom and controllers. Um, so you can buy them to make it easy, but also I encourage looking at them for inspiration because many of the things they can sell you can make um, in the lab. Um, the real key picture for today, uh, actually, let me show one last thing and then I'll show that picture. Um, these three are, at the heart of all of this are the motors. And so uh, Shenzhen Just Motion Control, um, uh, Wantai motors, and um, Oriental motors have really good prices on the motors. And you can order one, ten, a hundred, a thousand, and if you don't, if they don't have exactly what you want, um, they can customize it for you. And they have a huge range of design options. Like one of the most annoying things is how you attach to the motor, and you can pick many different ends for your motors. And so these are great vendor. You know, I've shown a number of motor vendors, but once you start doing this seriously, you'll probably end up with these kinds of vendors um, to get. A, close to the source of the motors until the point you start making your own motors, um, which isn't that far off. Um, so let me finally end this tour with my favorite picture uh, for all of this that comes from uh, Yen, which is um, so if we scroll down, so this is starting on the ShopBot to make the machine. And then, and again, you don't have to start with aluminum. You can do this in HDPE, say. Okay, so here's the picture. And this is really the final punchline for today. 
the lower left are the motors he buys. There's the fasteners he buys, but he doesn't really need to buy them because those could be flexural press fit. Um, there's the cables, um, there's the electronics, but most of that you could make in the lab. And everything on this side is what he makes. But it's subtle because he's making the racks and pinions and the glide blocks and the bearings. And so he's actually making all of the mechanism. And the goal is bit by bit more of the left to migrate to the right. So you need to source less and less for the machine. And so that's reducing the cost. It's reducing the supply chain. It's reducing the import. But it's also enlarging the design space because you're not limited by the inventory of them. And so every time we do this, there's, you know, in the beginning, everything was on the left. And we're now about two thirds of the right way to the right. And every time we do this, a little bit more will be on the right. Okay. So that's a tour back. The real goal of the coming week is integration. Um, it's probably eye-opening to appreciate just how much is going from when you do the design to when the machine makes it. The goal for the coming week is for you to see how each of these steps fit together in the end-to-end -end integration. So for this week, I'm not concerned if, if whether or not you buy or make it. And it's a, the goal is a group project, but just track who's doing what. The real goal this week is integration of all these parts. And just Again, as a footnote to go back to, if we go into Binderhollern, um, you have a group, and then within the group is, for example, the site. The site has the issue tracker. Along with issues, you can have lists. There's a Kanban board, which measures the steps of workflow. You can label events. Um, you can have milestones for what happens when. There's a whole bunch of project planning things in your GitLab sites for each of your labs. You can use those these week to help coordinate what you're doing. And you can build HTML, or it's perfectly fine to actually just make a public project and build. Everything I've been showing you with Jake, for example, is, um, let's see, that was here. Um, he just, in GitLab, in Markdown, makes public projects where he's building all his document right there and so that you know you can experiment with the project management also this week okay final questions or comments Ross says good Neil Felicity go ahead yes uh, I wanted to know are we allowed to use an Arduino yeah, for this week, you can use anything. In the final projects, you need to make your own Arduinos because I want you to know how to do it. Um, this week is different. This week, I don't, I'm not concerned in buying versus making. This week is all about the end-to-end -end integration. Again, the, the Arduino sensitivity is Arduino is all the things I've described. It's libraries, it's an IDE, it's a form factor, um, it's a board. The point of Arduinos in the final project is to learn each of them separately. And so if you use the Arduino libraries and the Arduino IDE, I want you making your own boards, which just means any board with an AVR. For this week, it doesn't matter what you use. This week is all about the end-to-end -end integration. I want you to see how all these parts fit together. Okay, thank you. Okay, 
And um, next week, which is one week in the future, I'll say there's four weeks left. So you really need to manage time very, very carefully for your final project. So keep that ticking over in the background as you work on the machine building. And use the um, final project issue tracker, not just to ask me, but to ask everybody questions and share thoughts and questions about final projects. Okay, this will be fun. And be ready next week, prominently on your lab site, link your machine project. And we're gonna do a real quick minute per lab and see everybody's machine zipping through them. And a minimum from your site, and ideally be ready to actually show it to us live. So that'll be a lot of fun next week. Good. Happy machine building. See you Monday for um, Kenya and then machines next week. Bye-bye. 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 B